word to the wise, we are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. We are discussing the entirety of Era One of Mistborn by Brandon Sanderson. Hey there, this is Cross. And I'm PJ. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club. I, in my infinite wisdom, like to screw with Crossland and uh, wreck the format of, of our counting again. You know, every time. It was, it was earlier. It was, what, two days ago and in today and the week before. It's fine. It's fine. We're here. <laughs> Today is very exciting, though. We've we've got kind of a, a, hum, a humdinger. That's what I was going to say. I'm saying it anyway. <laughs> Today, we've got on our show Mish from Shardcast and Sister Show Span Reads to join us to wrap up and tie a nice little bow on Era One. We're so excited to have you. Introduce yourself to the, the people. Hello, I am Michelle. I'm also known as First Rainbow Rose on the 17 Shard Forum Discord pretty much anywhere on the internet. If you see First Rainbow Rose, it's me. I am one of the founders of the 17th Shard fan site for Brandon Sanderson. And we, you know, I help host Span Reads, which is a podcast that goes through each of the books, unlike normal rereads, where it's chapter by chapter, we've been doing it with different themes for each of the episodes. So it's a little bit of a different take on the books and a whole i've really loved following along with him pj hasn't been able to until now he's done so it's okay <laughs> now that he's out of era one to like take a second he can appreciate some other media and forms and so i'm very excited for him to get to kind of listen along i've really appreciated it the not only has the show been but the 17th shard both in the forms of the physical discord of the forums themselves and the copper mind have been incredibly useful in pulling the show together and at times answering some stupid questions that I cannot remember in like the best possible detail. So it's it's actually been instrumental. So it's great to have you on the show because it's kind of been the backbone of keeping me sane, <laughs> not having to go through and do so much research. So uh, the Coppermine people are amazing. I, I'm not part of that group, that, but I, I bow down in awe of them because they <laughs> work really hard to make sure that they keep things on track. Yeah, it's it's great. It's fantastic. PJ can't touch it until we're through Stormlight. So it's that'll be fun. So eventually he'll know what I'm talking about. But until then, he'll he'll occasionally like take screenshots of some things and like edit them. So he like kind of turns it into a what redacted sheet and like <laughs> yeah, post it for me to watch. So I'm like, all right, I can I can read these things apparently without ruining my <laughs> my immersion in the world. And so. none of that, none of that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, I really love the format, the idea of breaking it up into, okay, first we're going to do plot, then we're going to focus on the characters and locations, and then characters magic. Characters and relationships, and then the magic in the books, and then the book in, as it impacts the Cosmere as a whole, and, you know, some of your cross-character, introdu- your, your, your world hoppers and things like that. And, Got it. As as a personal curiosity, are you guys cons- are you guys going to go through every book, or are you going to stop 
with like Mistborn as it is. Our goal is to do every Brandon book. So even cool. outside of the Cosmere, we there are discussions right now about possibly doing the Defiant series and the in preparation for the next book coming out. So nice. That's that's fantastic. Yeah, the all right. So we like to start with kind of a softball. We've been enjoying asking this question to each one, but now that we've kind of gotten it fully fleshed out, we've expanded it a little bit. Given the choice, we'll, we kind of all answer these and feel free to pose any questions back, of course. But given the choice, would you rather be a Mistborn or a Ferrochemist? Where do you where do you stand? I am in the Ferrochemy camp. I've never really been drawn to being a Mistborn, but I I had a failed attempt at playing the Mistborn RPG at one point, And I was mm. a Ferrochemist, Ferrochemist spy who I loved the one situation that we I ended up using my abilities on, I slapped somebody and I superheated my hand really hot so that when I slapped them, it was like bright red. And everybody was like, no, it was just a normal slap. And everybody and I was like, I'm cute and innocent. I have no idea why that slap would leave a bright red hand mark. I, I love I, too, am on Team Farrakemi. PJ and I got into this a little bit on the last one, but I, I definitely feel like Farrakemi is the way to go. There's just so much more versatility. Yeah, yeah I, I think I agree with you for the most part, but there's just some the iron and steel usages and day to day life making things so much easier. I think would be I think it'd be worth it, but I've been going back and forth after our conversation, and I think every hour or so I'm on a different side of the coin. So it's it's interesting. I mean, you are a mechanical engineer, so on top of that, it's like okay, there's there's some logical applications that make sense. I get it. You could pull some things into place that might not otherwise work, and the entire idea of like being able to Spider Man around effectively, uh, you know, that's attractive. I get it. Mostly in an office chair. <laughs> so that that's kind of like the the simple top level version of this question. I think the more fun one is putting a little bit of a restriction on it. If you had to pick one mistborn ability, which which type of misting would you be? Oh, it's always so hard to choose just the one. I would I find myself leaning towards seer being able to see the future a little bit might be kind of nice. Playing with the the emotions might be kind of nice. Those are the two that I tend to lean toward. Seer is so interesting. I think that it was never on the table in any of the previous episodes until we read Hero. So it was never something that PJ had even made a guess at or like an assumption of. <laughs> That's true. Because we've asked this question in each wrap up, right? Because it's it's kind of a good through line with everyone. And Seer wasn't on the table before. So fair point. Now that that's on the table, I might have to might have to think a little bit more. I think that that's a fun idea. I still think Iron Pole for me. I really do. I think I'd use it a lot just to to move around and do everything. I'm just so afraid yeah. that you're going to like pull something. I'm afraid for you, for the record, because I know how tall and clumsy you are. And <laughs> the, the chance of you like pulling a knife into your hand just like seriously gives me the. Well, the it'd go into my chest, though, so I'd be OK. Yeah, but you'd stick your hand out to try to catch it and you wouldn't realize that it was coming towards your chest. You see the problem? Yeah. Lots of practice with lots of dull blades before you actually go for the, <laughs> the sharp ones. Mm -hmm. lots of, Great point. Lots of getting going out, 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 <laughs> I would imagine. Because mm -hmm. there are, you know, the in-world ones that have just the one ability. And I would imagine they probably have a lot of practice starting with just like metal balls that they catch. And then they move on to the sharp. 
to the slightly pointy and eventually they get to the point where they're used to catching it and stuff and I think the the wildest part for me is because they don't have steel to counteract it and push against it, they can't slow it down themselves. I I picture in my head somebody pulling at it and then stepping off to the side and doing a, a mid-air grab. Yeah. Mm, of like a spear or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That would work really well. The so in, in the book, of course, lurchers are described as like pulling it into a shield generally or pulling the coins or whatever metal. They, they like hold the shield and then pull it into them to absorb that, which I like the idea of. I think that works pretty well. But yeah, to your point, it's it's not the flashiest. And I do love that you've gone for not the flashiest ability, PJ, consistently. And you've you've decided to stick it out. But I still I'm, I'm still going to go with the steel push. Like if I had to outside of Seer, now I actually have to consider Seer, the emotional elemancy. Super great. Feels unfair. Feels like you go into a profession to like benefit yourself as, you know, as either a writer or a soother. That seems so like absolutely up your alley. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but <laughs> that I want to I want to influence others traits, PJ. That's the thing. You know, you want to you want to mix and match a little bit more. I wonder if there'd ever be somebody who would go for not aluminum, but yeah, like or somebody who would go for who's like goal in life would be to be a misting that cancels cancels out others powers so you just run around and they're like haha no more powers for you goodbye <laughs> just snap them away yeah i mean and i i think that that's not unreasonable you know it's it's one of those things that's brought up in the logbook by Sazed, right is the the idea that like there are all these other mistings, but they would never know because either they couldn't afford the metals in the first place to eat them or like it wasn't it wasn't something that they were even tested for because people also weren't aware of it. So it wasn't something that was even on the table. I do really in this first era question how many of those there were. I mean, we have a ratio, right? It was like 16 percent roughly, but still. So I wanted to add a new one to the pile because we really get a better explanation here, too. If you had to be. A ferrochemist of who only whom only had one capability. I explained to PJ that they're called fairings, even though it's not really explained for a bit, but it's fine. It's not really that big of a spoiler. It's okay. But if you had to be a fairing, what would you choose? I feel like this is the one that doesn't get asked. I it's so hard to decide on just one because they have Mm -hmm. such a wide range. And it's always hard to remember what all the different fairings are. Yeah, right. Oh, I don't remember the names. Don't don't even try to quiz me on the fairing names because I could not. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I'm talking just the straight powers. I don't I I can't even remember what the different powers are to limit it down to just one. So iron for weight, steel for speed, tin for senses, pewter for strength, copper for memory, zinc for mental speed, brass for warmth. And bronze for wakefulness are the ones that have been revealed. Oh, and gold for health have been the ones that have been revealed so far. See, I'm perpetually tired. So part of me is like, wakefulness. I want to be awake finally. <laughs> that's a good yeah, like, the sleep was... and then. Yeah. That's a good one. Be sleepy all weekend, actually have be awake during the work week and not struggle. Now, if I were to really choose one, I'd probably choose like mental alertness because I feel like if you have the brain power to do, you can do practically anything. And spending the weekends like being a little bit mentally slow to have the work week be 
just that much of an edge would be very nice. I I really like that idea. I think that's a great one. So the copper mines usage is not part of that. Is that correct? No, because that's just memories. So coppers are just memories. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think I'd probably go with the wakefulness as well. <laughs> you and I have had a lifelong commisery on like insomnia and being having a horrible relationship with sleep. So I think that'd be the most useful for me. You could force yourself into sleep, you know, like you could actually put yourself down <laughs> effectively, mm-hmm. which would be pretty useful in its own right. I like that. I like that. I I think that there's there's a lot of use. I think that's what I like so much about ferrochemy and why I choose similarly to be a ferrochemist, um, Mish. So I, man, I'm I'm torn. So we're all on the cognitive side of things. I think is the answer here because I think I am. I would go copper personally. The ability to either store memories or information to me is just so useful. I do store stuff like that well i feel like i'm a little bit of an encyclopedia at times but there's just like gaps every once in a while and i just wish i could fill in those gaps um more more effectively and efficiently and i think that that would benefit me more in the long run because i i've gotten very good at keeping a schedule but a great example would be being able to like store and recall a schedule really easily in theory i should be able to do that in a calendar app on my phone you know, like that, that should be very doable. But I think if I stored it in metal physically and then called it out and back in, that'd be better. I don't know. I'm ADHD. So calendar apps and things are just, they, they sound lovely in theory, but in practice, it just somehow never quite clicks. And I almost wonder with the ADHD, and I now really want to ask Brandon that question, how much would an ADHD copper mine or somebody with a copper mine struggle to remember okay now which ring did i put that interesting because it's not like it fixes the issue right like it just it corrects for some things that's oh man (laughs) you need to keep like a separate table of contents right like the (laughs) copper mines themselves have their own table of contents you'd need a completely different cataloging system oh i now actually mental illnesses like adhd and stuff with all of the different powers would be so fun to play with yeah on a on a like sensory level yeah totally pj what were you gonna say i was gonna say we kind of started to see we it wasn't quite in the powers but vin's mother having having some mental issues i i think the in universe or in world context of like how that could manifest was basically being more manipulated or having more being more susceptible to being manipulated by ruin, but that doesn't answer anything as far as actual abilities go, which would be hmm. there's Zane, I guess. Yeah. No Zane. We could we've explore that a little bit more in depth, but <sighs> yeah. I mean, as far as Farrakimi goes though, it's like, it, it is interesting. Cause you'd wonder if a depressed person storing bronze, like just slept all the time. Like what, how does that actually, I think we actually, what did, what were we talking about the other day, PJ? We were talking about, Oh, we were talking about the, this is what's so interesting with Farrakimi is that it's so thinly defined that there are like some tough lines. I think mental illness is a great example. Obviously it doesn't cure says it's depression. So I guess it's totally reasonable that he would have depression. I'm running through all these things in my head. Sorry. We were talking about 
specifically about like storing and losing weight in the form of iron, right? So skimming and, and whatnot there. And to what degree that would have physically on your body, if any. And then, you know, like a, a lot of these things. So I wonder, you know, hmm. I'm not getting to where I want to get in posing this because there's just so many questions in thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Oh, Kemi, you complex mistress, you. Um, since I can't make up my mind on where I want to go with the Kemi topic, uh, move on to the next one, unless anyone has anything else on the magic, of course. Instead of how lovely it is, I'm sure we'll talk about it more as we proceed. Jeez. Okay. Hard to not talk about the fact that Kelsier and the legacy of Kelsier is like ever present in this story from the very first time that he splashes onto the page in the prologue. What what did you guys make of what do you make rather of his sacrifice and then its subsequent impact across the whole story? I mean, all of these characters have character arcs and Kelsier's almost entirely happens off page. I mean, his personal arc happens on page, but, you know, like legacy. It's a hard question to answer (laughs) because, I mean, you see, it's one thing Brandon does really well is Kelsier, you know, dies in the first book. But even in the third book, when Vin's making decisions, she's thinking about what would Kelsier do and how would Kelsier handle this situation? And the fact that he's made such a huge impact on her life with just the little bit that he does I mean, he dies, what, two thirds of the way through the first book? I mean, a, a lot of a lot of martyrs have like significant impacts inside of stories. But I mean, I think I don't know if there's a better martyr in so few pages outside of maybe Brom and Aragorn. Spoilers for Aragorn. But, you know, I th- those are the two in my head that are probably elevated highest. Yeah. Jay? I feel like a great insight into some of Brandon's more complex thoughts about religion and about martyrdom through through Kelsier, through so many different points of view, and how intoxicating that sort of belief can be, especially when you're talking about spook. So I, I think his legacy living on is, is so diverging through different, like through the Church of the Survivor, through Vin, through Ellen, who never knew the man, through Spook, who idolized him, and that got to be sort of a point of ingress for ruin. I, I think his his impact and his life were so far-reaching, more so after death than in life. I don't remember where I started that and where it ended and if that <laughs> answered the question, but yeah. Did it? <laughs> no, I, I think that's great. I think that you actually put such a fine point on it that it's like... That's that's a great way of like his his impact is so far reaching. It stretches into every corner of the story. Ellen is even having not met him is constantly contemplating what he would do to his crew versus what, you know, what he's currently doing. So there's there's well, a lot of that. And I guess like even Demo, his final thought is just cursing Kelsier. Like however long afterward his final thought so kelsier is such a like vibrant person that that's their fine that he's able to be the final thought of someone is i was saying something with that and i don't remember what i mean that was enough because i was something that i had totally even i think neglected to talk about in our coverage of it which is a great point because he's like demo is demo whichever way it doesn't really matter who cares but you know he's so consumed by his faith that he's like he's cursing him in that moment but at the same time he's it's like it's not it's like a 
it's not like a fist wagging at the sky. It's more like less like an admonishment, but like a damn your charisma kind of a thing. I think I said the wrong character, not Demo, but uh, Doxon. Oh, Doxon. Yes. Okay. Also a great yeah. point. I think the point stands maybe a little less religious. <laughs> yeah. 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 Sorry, that's on me. I said the wrong character. <laughs> oh no, that's no. It kind of worked totally out. Totally right. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, either way. Yeah, you just sold me under a bridge. Is what happened because I totally was like, oh, did I forget about that in the book? <laughs> yeah, it's good though. It still stands to reason for Dachshund, though. It's the, it's the same argument. Yeah, because he just didn't want to be a part of that. You know, we we go a lot of places in Era One, and I, I really appreciate everywhere that we go. But what's what's everybody's favorite setting? This is kind of a, a simple one to tee up, but. Favorite place we spend time. I'm a pretty dresses girl, so I love seeing the balls. Oh, yes. I did put a little question in at the balls at the last second, so I did add those. But, yeah. Balls, for sure. Yeah. The balls. I would love to go to an era one ball and dance the night away and kind of play politics a little bit. Sounds like a lot of fun. I would be very jealous exceedingly. Yeah. That'd be that would be a blast. And I'd love to attend one. But I don't think I'd fit in. Be your own Ellen. I mean, yeah. ah. the, the tall one in the corner. I mean, you wouldn't be reading a book, but. Yeah, maybe maybe that's the case. I think I love the thieving crew, like clubhouses, just in the slums, sneaking around subterfuge. I don't know. I felt like it was so being in such a humble place, but dealing with empire ending rebellions and planning from that was was such a cool kind of dissonance and i had fun in all of those scenarios other than like the horrible abuse that happens in them that's never fun but the settings themselves i felt like were really cool yeah that's that's a great call the crew all the crew locations especially in the first book were pretty fantastic as far as that went every time that they met up at clubs of shop right and every time that you kind of got that secret room vibe and you got to get to be in the room where it happened you know as they're planning their oceans 11 like heist was pretty fantastic that's a good choice i think i have to pick the Condra homeland i just love i'm a sucker for all that the Condra bring to the story in hero of ages and i really 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 appreciate the insight into this other it's almost otherworldly society even though they're really people you know they're just really old people from a from a bygone era and i i just think that the entire thing the smooth walls the weird torture cells that that as a setting is one of my favorites that just really gets appended on you know in the last in the last book but it's lovely i love what you guys have brought up too for sure i mean it seems like you guys are like luthadel <laughs> i love but yeah, God, it's great. The homeland is pretty sweet. PJ, you had a powerful question that you wanted to ask. <laughs> I had a question that Cross and I have gone back and forth with. I feel like I'm kind of on the unpopular side of this argument or this question, but what are your thoughts on Alrian? Did you did you like her? I like I love the manipulative characters, like the ones that are just kind of doing their own thing. And I love how she's I I wouldn't say I love her, but I definitely like her. I think that okay. she's fun. I think I I do love the scene where she just comes out and she's like, nope, I'm not going to manipulate you. I'm just going to flat out say it. The gloves are off. Time is it's time to be real now. And dad, we're going to do this. And but by way of like 
characters that manipulate and just hee hee, I'm so cute. Yeah, that's fair. Crossland likes her. I <laughs> dislike her. You, you can you can defend your side. You can rebuttal. You can rebuttal after this. But I, I guess my biggest problem with Alrianne is I never trusted her from the beginning. That distrust maintained through her entire character arc. And I never felt like she had enough time on the page to gain any trust. We're just kind of expected to trust her because Breeze trusts her. But like that trust is entirely manipulated to begin with. So I, I just felt like I was I didn't have enough of her in order to actually develop positive feelings for her. That's fair. Crossland, you can say your piece about Alrian. <laughs> I love Alrian. I think Alrian is great for all of the reasons that Mish said. And like the idea that someone is able to so easily infuriate Breeze is one of my favorite parts of her character introduction. Like to, to work Breeze up, the person who's been unshakable, unflappable. It's, it's great because I think especially here, Well of Ascension really does a great job of painting Breeze as a character in general. It's a great additional POV that I really appreciate. But it, it goes from him being like, oh, yes, I am the emotional manipulator. <laughs> Mastermind, mustache twirl. To like a real character, like a substantial character who has all these feelings and emotions from all Rian to the actual fight for the city of Luthadel when he, you know, ends up in the basement. So I think by way of breeze i love all you're on thin ice counselor no i i, I don't know i i just <laughs> no, i really I appreciate it. her for all of the reasons previously i i know that one of our friends that we had on the first episode made mention of a female character that she doesn't like and i knew that it was all from the moment that she said it and she's been giving me shit in every episode for it so <laughs> yeah as it goes but needless <laughs> to say i'm glad to hear Mish, that you also like Ariane because i needed someone in my corner one yeah. of these episodes she's a fun character but mm -hmm. again i like the characters that manipulate because i think that if i were if i were thrust into a book and given the manipulation well I were to become a main character in a book, I should say it as, I think that I would end up being one of those that is like the background manipulators. Everybody thinks, oh, she's so cute and innocent until the last minute when I pull out the gloves and it's like, ha ha, just kidding. You thought. <laughs> that, I mean, I, I love that for you, A. Like, absolutely glorious. Clap, clap. I also really, really appreciate like what what that adds to the story on the whole because Alrian is the opposite in a lot of ways in the well of ascension to Vin like it's meant to be like a uh, they they have this interesting dichotomy between the two of them there's the outward puff and there's the inward puff as it were so i mean inward knife i guess but it get that gets to a really interesting question that PJ and I have spent a ton of time talking about on the podcast and off accidentally spawned a couple of reddit threads you know, we talked about our episode length, our longest episodes. We're always talking about this question. So I want to bring it up, not for us to re-interrogate it ourselves, but to hear your opinion. Because there's so much tape. There's like 10 hours of tape of us talking about this. But thinking back to the... That was a long preamble. Thinking back <laughs> to the Well of Ascension, a frequent point of conversation that we've had is whether or not the dress that she gets in the shop unites or separates Vin's two sides. What are your thoughts on what the dress symbolizes? 
I think that dress, mm-hmm. first dress, sep- yep. the first dress separates. I think by the end, she is. I love that scene in Hero of Ages where she finally accepts herself as the girl who likes the poofy dresses and can kill. But yeah, no, that that dress, she's not ready yet to be the poofy dress and the cute. One of us was going to gloat whatever you chose. It just happens that it's me silently gloating and no one gets to hear or see this, but I've been shaking my fist exclaiming. Mm. I'm so glad to hear. I, I agree. I also think that the other side does have some some valid points because I think that there is an argument that this is kind of a moment where she could have made a decision. And, you know, it's it starts to become a possibility here, I think. That's one thing that I think is important to acknowledge. But yeah, I don't yeah. think she's hit that point yet. Right. Yeah. Okay. I'll concede. Suck it. I'll concede for now. He said that we have like 10 hours of tape on this. We do. We also have maybe five or six hours off recording where we just like yell at each other. Because <laughs> as you can see, we drink on the podcast and on those long episodes, we'll like take a break and get up and grab another drink. And then by the end of it, we're like, all right, we're stopping recording. And then we spend three hours yelling at each other <laughs> in an alcohol feud fueled like rambling which is always it's always a great time for everybody involved (laughs) we truly have not gotten into an argument that's been that long off air since iron gold ish i think yeah we had had one that spanned a solid seven hours on morality that was that was a tough that was a tough day next next day i think we went to bed at like three in the morning it was a long long night yeah long day it was tough but it was, it was good. It was a good time. I, I think that's, but in, in the case of literature, I think that's one of the fun things is like, how do we see things? It's not, it's not as though one of our answers is more correct, except for this time in which ours is, but you know, it's, it's all about your own interpretation. So thanks for the pandering Crossland. You're I appreciate welcome. Yeah, the, uh, just the little you. bit of leeway that you gave me there. Just the tiniest <laughs> bit. Yeah, finally. I can finally concede this point. Excellent. I'm just going to be riding this ego trip for like at least a half hour so (laughs) but i i do i do really appreciate the duality that that's talked that's posed with this dress that's posed with even sort of the the kingly to emperor nature of vin or not vin of ellen and then like ellen to yeoman like there there's a lot of nice dual pairings of people that happen in the story as comparison points of power another great one that i don't think it's talked about a lot is zane and kelsier because they're kind of they're dichotomous for vin specifically in the well of ascension as being you know similarly powerful mistborns going in opposite directions morally and that kind of mis- misleads her a little bit and that gets kind of to the central theme of vin right which is that of kind of trust and growth she's our main girl obviously she takes down ruin she's raised up by preservation there's there's all of this wonderful stuff but i and i want to give her some more time to shine on the show what what are your guys's some of your guys favorite moments with vin oh there's some great ones there are so many great ones i think the one that stands out the most to me when I think back on the series is probably the moment when she's like, you just made a mistake to ruin, like ruin kills Ellen and he, he's gloating. And she's like, Oh no, 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 you don't understand. You just made a mistake. And you get to see that true full fury of just what mm-hmm. she is. Cause she holds herself back the entire time. She, 
is she has her more you know talking about morality she has her morality and she has her like i won't cross this line and when she does cross the line she beats herself up for it and then ellen is killed and she's like and now i don't care about anything else you just killed the one reason i had to be a good person that's it's a strong one it's it's interesting too because i i feel like that is like losing the most important thing to her. So I, I think that the moment makes sense. But I've, I've always felt like well, she still has Sazed, you know, like Sazed's still there. You can't you can't pour one out for our boy that way. But I, I get it because it is fracturing in this moment. It's like I can do the right thing for everyone else who's still alive. So I understand why. That's a good one. That's a good one. I think the the wedding between Ellen and Vin. Oh, that is and, a great. Moment. And her just she's always just straight to business no nonsense nothing indulgent but she still allows herself to like she she wants it to be as practical as possible obviously but she wants to make that symbolic move forward in the relationship i don't know it was simple and it was it wasn't that long of a of a passage but i felt like you got to see her soft side a little bit while still like maintaining that very, <laughs> very practical Vin. What about you, Crossland? That moment makes me so sad to think back on now. I was just, I was just remembering <laughs> it. I was like, oh man, when Caesar marries them, right, right, right. That's such a, man, I, w- I want to bring this up before I provide my answer because I don't know that we've talked about it. So we've, we've came off with the opinion basically from reading the series and for me rereading it for the third time. I think... And and you don't you don't have to be so solid in your choice, but I, I want to ask uh, Mish what your favorite book of the series is, if you had to choose. Ooh, I it's a tear between book one and book three mm, because okay. book one has a little bit of everything, but I'm not a fan of like I find fight scenes boring, mm-hmm. and one has the most like i think fight scenes versus book three is a little bit more of political maneuvering and kind of background scenes so don't know if i can come down one way or the other between that's fair that's reasonable i love the well of ascension i'm a broken broken person apparently as i'm one of the few that really appreciate the well for what it is but pj were you gonna i think i'd choose the well also actually Because I I do like fight scenes, and I feel like we get a decent amount of both. We get a decent amount of political intrigue and just really intricate fight scenes in The Well of Ascension, along with more solid understanding of... I talk about this a lot on our show. I love rules. I love really solid rules, and we get a ton of that at the end of book three, but we get a lot of the like really, really solid foundation within two. So for those three reasons, I guess that that solidifies my choice. I think I like two so much for a lot of these emotional moments that we're talking about, right? Like the the wedding in particular and, and the final moment within I also adore, which is why I'm having such a t- hard time picking because I do. If you would if you'd asked me this question on the outside, I would have gone probably book one, book three and then book two as far as or actually I probably would have gone three two one like backwards were my favorites and then over the course of this reread and show and covering it i think i've ended up going changing and been two one three which i really didn't expect but i've 
I've really enjoyed a lot of the the character highlights and moments that you get inside of Well, even though it is it is definitely slower and it is more of a departure as far as expectations go. But I said I still I still really enjoy it. I like the I like the little murder mystery. I'm trying to pick my moment still, and that was my delaying tactic, and I still <laughs> haven't settled. Yeah, you just entirely diverted your your question. I did in an attempt to give myself time <laughs> to think about this more. Uh, hmm. And we just went along with it. You did. You guys did it. What so does that say great. about us? So great. Thank you. Oh, for I that. noticed. <laughs> I noticed, but I was going to let him, I was going to let it slide. Cause I've tried that myself to distract. And well, like, let me ask yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> kind of the, the same idea. Yeah. I, hmm. Man, I have a tough. After you said the wedding, that's what threw me because all of a sudden I was like, "Oh, I'm not thinking of all of these other moments." Crossland really just went. Let me answer my own question with a question. It's true. Yeah. I did. Dead there. And also, I didn't come out the other side with an answer. Just think for me, it might actually be the more that I'm thinking about all these moments. I really love the scene in which Vin finally knocks Kelsier down a peg and he gets really emotional now that I think about it. That is such, that is a very powerful scene from that book. It's one of the final moments that we get with Kelsier really giving a heart to heart talking about Mare and Marsh and kind of the situation at the pits of Hathson and what went down there and his sort of final crumbling to not being this chest out kind of bravada dude finally kind of changes and breaks and he really becomes a, a, wholesome not wholesome but like a a full-hearted dude it, it adds a lot of complexity to his character that i think otherwise would have been missing without that moment and it's it's a great vin mm. moment because she stands up for herself even to her own friend of which she wouldn't have done before so it's it's got you know circular circular things for the theme of trust as well yeah there we go i made it i did it do I get claps? Well no claps? Okay. All right. No, I'm just kidding. So <laughs> didn't. Thank you for the pity. I appreciate it. You asked for it explicitly. I did. We're just being supportive. I, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes that's all we need. That's, that's exactly what we I'm need. being condescending. Deserve standard. <laughs> so I, I really think that one of the, you know, we're, I was just talking about the first book, talking about that a little bit more. Our perception of the Lord ruler really shifts over the course of these three books. Do you think that over the course of time in the way that we finally develop and learn more about him, does he get to the point where he, he is absolved of his wrongdoings and redeemed at all? Or do you think he should still be admonished completely for what he's done to his own people and to society and the whole for a thousand years in the face of these immortal gods <laughs> and their chess game? I think it's a little bit of an in-between. He's forgiven. A, I forgive him a little bit for what he's done. You know, he kind of does what he sees as what he has to do but there are certain aspects of it that you know he kept society at the exact same place within progress you know kept guns out of the hands of the everyday people he created the ska and that society and then just turns a blind eye to the terrible way that they are treated so the fact that he does it originally is forgivable. The fact that he lets it continue for a thousand years is not. I think it's a great take. I think I think that's a great point is just the fact that he perpetuates the own like his initial prejudices make a lot of sense for Rashek, right? Because he has those prejudices against people and he's trying to set up something that'll last a long time. But yeah, yeah, it's a fair point that he lets it go on for so long. And some of that 
Ruin wants things to change, right? So there's a question of how much influence did Ruin have, and I assume very little. Well, enough to like mess mess with him in the head, but not enough to. Hmm. Yeah, it'd be more preservation that would want to keep it as it is, and right, yeah. Right. So my my biggest sticking point with the Lord Ruler, on top of what you've mentioned already, the biggest one for me is the actual like existence of public executions at his own hand so it's not just turning a blind eye it's actually actively participating in this oppressive situation and that's the that's the one part for me that i'm curious if there is any influence in ruin we know he uses hemallergy through context with him having like embedded spikes or embedded uh, yeah metal mines and the like yeah yeah, so we know, and we know Ruin can still exert influence while trapped, so how much how much influence is there actually? Or is there just these deep-rooted prejudices that die hard? It's hard to know. Yeah, I, I, think, I, I think it's tough, similarly, to come down really hard one way or the other on Rashik, right? Like, the, the meme community likes to be like, oh, those, those Lord Ruler forgivers, you know, you absolutely cannot be a Lord Ruler apologist, which I don't think we are. I think we're trying to understand the complicated position that he was in and try to give it a little bit more nuance, right? Where it's like, Guy was effectively a thousand year doorstop for a a game of power between two gods, you know? And the question was, is the doorstop going to hold or is it going to bend, you know, the next time that he goes to the well? So, yeah, I, I think, I think I, you summed it up so well, Mish, that I don't think I even, I, I, I think that's my opinion as well. <laughs> like, I, I pretty much holistically agree. It's, it's, it's so tough to come down on Rashik for, for his, initial behavior because it's definitely incorrect but it's definitely prejudices based on where he was at as a pac-man and kind of seeing this person take and run with their religion that it didn't feel it didn't feel right to him and i i think that a lot of that makes sense but then in the end the decision to perpetuate it and keep it going for a thousand years is where the mistake really lies oh boy i want to ask a follow-up question to that though which is across these three books we have kind of like I don't want to call it completely unique. It's definitely not the only time I've ever seen it employed, but we do have a relatively unique thing in the form of these log books, right? First book, we've got a Lendy's journal. Of course, at first we think it's Lord rulers. Second, we have Quans and the third we have, as we figure out at the end, what do you guys think about the log books as storytelling tools throughout the series? I feel like it was, it would have been almost impossible to give such a deep lore based story without them. Because we need a t- we need an external tool to tell us these underlying rules of Alamancy and Farrakami. We need these underlying like historical significances of the Coloss and of the Chandra people that we we can't learn them in the point of view of our characters really to the extent that we need to know them in order to get the full understanding of what's happening. So I felt like it was incredibly powerful, and I really enjoyed reading them every week they're great for adding that just i the flavor of the world is not there if you don't have them mm-hmm. 
I think flavor is a great way to put it. I would definitely say they're they're kind of like the the salt base spice right on top, right? As you're you're sprinkling it over top of the story at the beginning of every chapter. Leave me alone. It was a bad joke. It's fine. I'll cut it. <laughs> won't. No, I won't. <laughs> but uh, you know, as as I'm thinking about the way that it's distributed, I think I do appreciate the logbooks quite a bit. I think they do a lot of exposition lifting, which is for me. I think what's so interesting is, especially in the second book. I wanted more of that information to be like from Sazed, if that makes sense. We do also get the same logbook entries even from Sazed. And then we also start to see the conflicts between what Sazed's saying and the actual logbook, which is kind of a fun riddle to play inside of the Well of Ascension. I, I like I like them all. It it is they're fun. Yeah. I guess I was just thinking about like how they how they work as, you know, storytelling elements, if that makes sense. And I, I think spice on top of the story, tons, tons of great sense there and lore. That gives you kind of that deep world sense. Mm-hmm. You posed something to me that I felt like was was very on topic recently, but it it got me thinking. If there was an adaptation, how would you most effectively do these logbooks and and give that same information? I think it'd have to be. I think it'd have to be almost a sort of preamble narrator at the beginning of every episode or part or whatever whatever this adaptation ends up being it's hard to really make that work well you know that's yeah i i think it really depends on the angle that you go at with this with with adaptation move into that because that's a fun question of late but thinking about adaptation with this i i guess like a first question before we can even really think about how you would tackle the logbook is would you guys prefer to see movies or a tv series I personally would prefer a TV series because I just like the idea of being able to explore everything. But of the between Stormlight and Mistborn, which are the two that you know most people are thinking about adapting, I think Mistborn lends itself better of the two to being a movie. But I would want. I think that they everything should be a TV series. I'm a TV series fan because you just yeah. get a chance to really get into the characters and get into the world more with the tv series i think especially lately we're we're seeing such high production value and in, like deep tv that it's hard to not want that for every single every single book series that you read you know like it'd be hard to pare this down i think now like today if you were to approach Lord of the Rings, I don't know if you'd do three movies again. I think you could, but I think it'd be so much more tempting to really, really explore more of it and go the full Hobbit through through Return of the King as a single series. But, I mean, that's kind of where we're at at TV right now, which is a great place to be, I think. I think that's a great point to bring up the Lord of the Rings in the conversation. The Lord of the Rings is so interesting to me from an adaptation perspective, um, being that they're three-hour movies, and that was against the norm, right? So effectively, a mini-series of TV episodes, right? And it's effectively pulled off the entire thing in basically a season of TV, if you want to think about it that way, in terms of time to, time to tape. So yeah, I, I guess... 
I've I've said since we started the show that I think that my answer is I think the first one should be a movie. I think you could do Mistborn itself as a movie. That story is so well written to be adapted to a movie. And then you switch to TV series. And I, I really like that sounds weird to say, but I, I feel like that's actually a really great transition because that first book feels so dense and perfectly plotted that way. And then everything else needs more time to kind of like fill it out. And you can imagine all those little world building bits you could add to a TV series for the other two books. You said miniseries, and I forget that that I forget about it. But honestly, I think that that would be the best way to adapt them is just do don't do a TV series, quote unquote, do a miniseries, do a I grew up my mother's one of my mother's favorite shows ever was the Thornbirds, which was a four two hour episodes. And I think that that format would lend itself, you know, do six or eight movies, hour and a half movies, and mm-hmm. let that be a thing. Don't try and stick it into a TV series or a movie series thing. Bring back the miniseries. Let Mistborn be a miniseries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Almost like a Sherlock-style release schedule. Yeah. Movie by movie, book by book. Yeah. And that would also let you give, you know, the hero of ages in the well of ascension, the little bit more time that they need to work out. And you could like start with three episodes and then do four or five and then do reasonably. I I think that PJ and I have talked about this a little bit, but hero feels a little bit rushed in text form, if that makes sense, versus really giving the characters time to shine. You know, you can start to see some of the inklings of PJ doesn't know this, of course, but you can start to see some of the inklings of where his writing wants to go here with where he goes later with the next books. You know what I mean? That's all that I can really say without spoiling things for you, PJ. I know that Mish gets it, so I'm using that analogy. But you can start to see him laying those foundations for these bigger worlds and to really give it the space to breathe. And so I think in the same way, thinking about adapting it, you want to give it that space. So I'm in. I'm team miniseries. I'm team, you know, 12 episodes, cover the whole thing, hour to two hours, whatever. Make it work. Brandon, work your magic. So getting back to the core of this, though, the logbooks, I think, would work very well in a miniseries format like this. Like you could cold open with kind of like a short scene or a short depiction of, you know, a chunk of the logbook effectively and like portray a lot of it. Like you could portray the legend of Elendi and then or begin that, you know, conversation around I am the hero, you know, Lendi being Rashik and then start to see that change over the course of the three stories. I think that'd be great. And you could also mislead the audience in the Well of Ascension with Quan starting the episodes and then have Sazed say contradicting things and be like, what? And you could mislead people in the same way very intentionally. Yeah. All right. I'm coming around. I was already there. I don't know why I'm saying I'm coming around. I'm there. <laughs> As I mentioned before, I'm very intentionally out of the loop on like any external media. I know from Crossland that there was some sort of not announcement, but conversation regarding adaptation for Mistborn. What is that at this point? Like, can you can you break that down for me more? The From what I understand, and I didn't watch the live stream, so I'm a little bit out of the loop myself. But from what I understand, the conversation is just Hollywood is throwing wanting to throw lots and lots of money at Brandon. And he is hoping that something he didn't say what, but something will be in production by next like on actual in front of the cameras recording by next year. 
Yeah, it's it's less people buying rights. So this is kind of the the more strict version. It's less people buying rights and more people are coming armed with staff saying we're ready to go than, you know, previously. Like we t- we interviewed an author Rob Hart, right, of whom both of his or three of his books rather have been optioned for series and so that option money is a big deal to authors, of course, it means eventually it might go into production, but this is different where they're actually approaching him with a full team of people being like we're past the point of just like looking at your script and maybe taking some passes to write it. We are actually here. We've got a couple of rough outlines of scripts, we've got a production team, we have places that we're going to film, we've got, you know, lists effectively of things it's not to say that those specific things are done it's just that they're more done than they usually would be with an author in their works awesome okay sweet that was that was kind of the takeaways but yeah we'll see it's very exciting especially considering you know covering this and talking about it will make for very fun stuff when we get to it you know hopefully in two years ish when the when the series is there So getting back to the book, we were talking about exciting movies for such a long time. I think one of the fun highlights of the story is the way that each of Ellen's kind of philosophy club friends spins off in different directions. Jostie's trying to most directly emulate Ellen's philosophy, failing and his entire family getting murdered. And Teldon deciding to continue on the path, kind of ignoring their philosophical conversations and not taking any of that seriously and continuing to work for the system that put him up there in the first place in Jostie's, of course, is executed by Ellen in the Well of Ascension, despite Ellen basically following that same path or trajectory that Jostie's did in the next novel. What do you guys think about the drinking buddies in general and their inclusion to give us this perspective on the younger cruft of noble society? I think that it is... I started to talk and then my brain decided to completely forget all the words. I said cruft. So, yeah, I agree. I understand entirely. I didn't plan that. I think that any society is going to have those philosophers and those people who want to make it better. I think that the interesting part of it is where you see them actually trying to implement it. Mm -hmm. And you see how Ellen tries so hard to stick to his goal you know stick to his guns and stick to his what's the word i'm looking for not morals but i mean ethics his 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 plan you know it's it's kind of his his structure yeah versus his friend who is willing to maybe let a couple of things slide in order to stay in power and it's just interesting to see how even these two characters who started out at the same point are end up in such a divergence over such little thing. Yeah. But then there's also the big things that influence it. Like, I, I think it's Jostie's who like had all these great intentions. And it, like, he talks to Ellen at the, at the, at his Colos camp saying like, I had, I was, I was doing what we said we were going to do. And my entire family was murdered for it. So here's what, here's, here I am. I don't know where else to go from here. So Seeing that sort of that philosophy fail every time, despite Ellen hanging on to it, he has to he has to let it go a little bit with the promise of bringing it back. But he has to become the person he needs to be as opposed to the the leader that he wants to be. And when he meets Jostie's is just he's not at that point where he's willing to see that you have to make concessions in order to like truly be effective as a leader on top of trying to be as moral as possible. Yeah, it's such it's such a tough line to navigate, right? Like the 
especially in the well, you want Ellen's ideas to succeed so badly because they're the right moral thing to do. And on a long enough timeline, you would hope that those ideas would ride to the top, rise to the top. But even when it comes down really to the line in the hero of ages, he can't really follow his own instincts politically or morally as he wanted to he he really beats himself up about it i mean i i think that that's one of the best parts i think about his arc is that he's like god this should be the thing that we aspire to be but our circumstances will forever prevent us from trying to you know achieve something that would be of like true moral good we we used the term moral paladin throughout the first and second book because that really kind of embodies the idea of ellen and kind of what he wants to strive for because he's he's not trying to come from a place of ignorance he's working really hard to you know get somewhere else so oh man we we definitely said moral paladin a lot in our coverage yeah and i think it works really well i think it it covers it covers the topic effectively we, we did say it a lot and then it falls off when we when we hit hero of ages because he has to do what he has to do to you know push push it all together but speaking of ellen what do we make of his change you know we, we've been talking a little bit about this transition from our literate little scamp in the first book to incompetent king in the second to the nigh omnipotent emperor in the third what do we make of this little roller coaster we have for our boy i mean we get to see it, so it feels natural and logical to us. But from an outsider's point of view, it's, I guess the biggest thing for me is it's interesting to see how much just having the metallic arts and having access to being a Mistborn changes him between book two and book three. Because by the end, at the end of book two, he's still kind of that unsure of himself going more likely to fumble through us conversation than anything but by the time we see him in book three he's showing up and he's like and we're doing this thing now and we see from the point from his point of view so we know that he still has his mental hang-ups and he's still questioning himself but yeah he's still got those core insecurities you know that he that he had before but it's really like he kind of like you put it i i would say competence he suddenly acquires competence and and wields power as competence which is fascinating did you feel like that was underbaked at all going into or like did, did it find did you do you find it jarring moving between books not unnecessarily underbaked but jarring not really jarring just because you've got so much going on that it's kind of in the background mm-hmm. but Thinking about it after the fact, you know, right right now, it almost seems a little bit convenient, if you will, mm-hmm. that he go he goes from bumbling, you know, by the at the end of book two, you know, he could give a speech if he needs to, but he'd still hum and haw a little bit about it, versus at the beginning of book three, he he shows up and he's like, "Yep, this is how it is." And it's a little bit convenient, but we also don't have that year of watching him grow that confidence. Yeah, I I feel like that's the biggest miss. Honestly, for me, I think in general, that's the one thing that I really miss from Hero that I would want to see and that I would assume we would see a little bit of in a TV series to give it a little bit more to give Ellen to show Ellen developing a little bit more because it does feel like he just shows up in Hero and he's like, boom, I am the puff chested emperor that you know i should have been before 
Yeah. I understand yeah, that. Crossland talked about that when we first started covering it in your first episode or two of Hero. And I didn't quite get it. But in retrospect, I, I completely understand where he was coming from saying, like, I, I wish we got to see more of that transition between Ellen and Ellen the King and Ellen the, or Ellen the deposed King and Ellen the Emperor. Because it is, it is a little bit of a, of a quick jump. And I know there's a, tra- I know there's a transition there and we don't get to see it. It's just that it's that little morsel of story that I would beg for if I could get anything else. Is there is there anything that you guys feel like is missing that you'd want inside of the story? Not necessarily in Ellen's, but like some little like chunk or piece that you wish you had a little bit more on. Or of Ellen and Vin's time together, because I, I it's a big pet peeve of mine, especially in book four or in book one, I should say, not book four, book one. You see them. I think they have a total of three or four scenes on screen together. And suddenly they're in love with each other. And you get a little bit more of the time with them together in book two. But even still, most of the time, you don't really see them interacting in a way that by the time they're married, you're like, yeah, okay, I guess I can see them being in love enough to be married. And then book three, you still, they're they're completely opposite areas for most of the book, but they're still pining after each other. And it's like, I would love to see more time of them on screen falling in love or more time of them just being in love. I agree holistically. And I think that that also solves the problem that, that I have with Ellen later with that, like missing year is like, if you're going to fill in time gaps, it's a great thing that you could do in an adaptation to show at that point they're married. Right. So, but you'd still see more of their relationship. You'd get more of a sense on what they're like day to day to kind of give that a little bit more breath and let it kind of fill and luxuriate a little bit more. I do agree with you. They're a little, they're not quite insta love. Like it's not, it's not quite as bad as I, bad's even a bad word to put inside of this context, but see, and even if it weren't insta love, I'd probably be more okay with it, but it's (laughs) an insta hate. And then suddenly Mm -hmm. it's love like love at first sight. You know what? There are rules to that that are, Break all the all the other rules that you would normally see. You want to do mm-hmm. love at first sight? Okay, I'm fine with it. But no, it's the exact opposite. It's she can't stand him at first, and then <laughs> so the half grounded thing is what really gets you. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I I completely agree. I'd love to see more of that because it does. I don't know if it's partially. I can't speak to. Like, obviously, I can't speak to Brandon's later works, but it, it felt like he shied away from writing anything truly romantic or intimate in general, which is fine. But in a very passionate love story between these two that we see none of the passion or intimacy, it makes it a little bit difficult to follow along with it and, and really buy in on it. So I completely agree with you there. I think my answer would depart a little bit in in topic. I want to see a point of view from Doxin because I feel like we're missing so much of the crew, especially early on and we could we could gain so much understanding of all of those characters because he's kind of the central project manager as it were 
for the entire crew and being able to interact with every single character from a single point of view in that respect would be so, so cool. I think. I love that you jumped to point of views. We were just talking about things that we want more of, but agreed. Yeah. I mean, well, I, I want more of the crew and I think that's how we would get it. Is sure. I, maybe I bridged the gap a little bit too soon, but no, no, no. I'm, I'm just poking at you mostly, but yeah, I, Ellen and Vin's relationship is simultaneously one of my favorite things. And like you've said, Mish, it's one of the things that I just want, I just want like a little bit more, like just a little bit more. The, the moment in well, like the waking up moment in well is so great. And it's just like, I, it doesn't need to be anything crazy. I definitely am not like in inside of this story. I wouldn't, I'm not going to look for Brandon mm-hmm. Sanderson to like lean in for anything, even semi-sexual, yeah. but at the, just a little bit more of like, give me, give me some more like kisses on the forehead, whatever, like just something to show a little bit of affection. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and you already have this great tool, which is the balls, right? And the balls do such a good job, especially in the first book. You said it was your favorite setting. I adore them. We get our first book balls, which are great. And then we get our final book ball, which I think is also wonderful. And I kind of just want to spend time talking about them because I think it is fairly unique to fantasy. Not not all fantasy given, but most modern fantasy that isn't in the romantic category wouldn't verge this way. And I love that this does and brings in this other side of kind of a regency almost to uh, to Mistborn. Yeah, I want to talk about the balls. What do you guys think? I love them. I love them as a plot device because they're great political. They're I think they're a fantastic way of sharing the setting and sharing the rep- showing the representation of the difference between the ska and the nobility. I think that they are lovely just all the way around. Yeah, some of the scene setting is great. Shauna Lariel, I will never forget her name because of just the impact that her presence has inside of those ballrooms and how everyone bows to Shan or Sean, whichever way it's said. I, I think either way will make for fantastic on-screen drama and tension. Um, and I can only imagine that that actress having a field day with that presentation. It's got to be boisterous, you know? I don't know. I get excited about that one. You, you mentioned it as a plot device, and I think thinking about it that way and thinking about it within the setting of, like, retro, retrospectively, understanding that this thousand years has been locked in with no progression intentionally means that, I mean, what are you going to do every day? <laughs> You know, there, there's no real forward progress in the way that you're interacting with people and jumping into balls is the perfect way to spend time. I, I think I think that the balls existence in general makes absolute perfect sense for the setting that we've been set in. And I there'd be such a huge void in noble society without them. So I love their existence. And I love that it's it's a point of in it's a point of intrusion, like of not intrusion, but of subterfuge through the first book and in the third book in Urto. No, not Urto. Fadrix. Yeah. Yeah. So being able to like go back to that and say, like, hey, there was change here. We don't like that. We're going back to the balls. Like all all of it. I love the existence of the balls, and I don't think I'd have it any, any other way. Yeah. 
love that. I love how much like we're we're just like, oh god, this series is so good because it it is. I think PJ and I both came out a little bit harsh in our last episode, so I'm glad that we kind of get to like pump it up a little bit. We didn't mean to be overly critical, I think, but we we spent a lot of time focusing on things that like we just want like little tweaks on and it's great to have this moment to be like there's so much about this that's so enjoyable. So thank you for yeah, sharing we, that with us. Yeah. Here. We definitely nitpicked a little bit. <laughs> yeah, we got a little nitpicky. I, I can think about that in post. I, I really love the way that the balls also telegraph the relationship and the way that that final ball really pays off that dance, that final, that dance that they wanted. I knew that PJ wasn't going to know that it was like the first chance and last dance at the same time. But I like tried to hammer it in being like, this is such a good, like, it's so so good, right? They're just like, yeah, it's cool that they danced. I was like, oh, it's so good. It's a moment <laughs> of love and it's a sacrament. It's great. It's something we wanted from the beginning. What would you make mm-hmm. of the, what were your thoughts on the last dance? A first time rereads, you know, either way. I think that it is one of the sweetest scenes that Brandon has ever written because it is that the callbacks of Ellen taking the time to find a book and to make Vin laugh, you know, it's sweet that he knows exactly what he was reading the first time he met her. Mm-hmm. It's sweet that he goes through the effort of making her laugh in the middle of this very tense moment. It's like he is clearly thinking about her in that moment. It's a great point. And that highlights kind of some of the other things that we were saying where it's like, it feels like those are some of the things that we want out of Vin and Ellen's relationship if we were to go back. And this this is one of those really tangible moments. And it makes it very impactful because we didn't have it all the time before. And they finally have time to, you know, have that quiet moment together. My heart. Yeah, I love that. So we've, we've been talking a lot about a couple of different things as far as what we'd like to see filled out in adaptation and kind of some some like gaps that we'd like to see filled or, you know, kind of a wish list. I, I want to pose something a little bit different, which is kind of like a what if scenario that we might explore for a little bit other than Kelsier, because the change of Kelsier living would make a dramatic impact on the story. Uh, what would have been the most dramatic change if one of the dead characters had actually survived until the end? Thoughts? Any anyone? I was wanting to give PJ a chance. Oh, to yeah, no, like I, I My, jump in every time. No, it's no, fine. No, I was no. also... I was also like trying to think of like what are I have an answer, which was the other thing that I was trying to remember. My answer is Tindwill. Oh, yeah, fuck. I think Tindwill is where I go as well because I mean, say Zed would be completely different in book three. I I think I think he wouldn't be the hero of ages anymore. I don't think he'd go through the arc that he needed to go through in order to become the hero without losing Tindwill. So the, yeah. the world explodes. Got it. All right. We've got a lot of faith <laughs> in Sazen. <laughs> Sazen's girlfriend lives and as such, the world explodes. So sad. I had someone else would pick it up. Hopefully Spook. Maybe maybe that's Spook's role in, in that alternate universe. I think a Tindwell is a good one. Was that also where you're going, Mish? Yeah. Tindwell was yeah. also where I would go. Is I mean, it also impacts Ellen and mm-hmm. Vin. Vin yeah. has two more years of being told no you are who you need to be we have ellen being stirred up a little bit better for to become the emperor he needs to be and you of course you have say zed not going through the religions and not becoming the hero of ages Mm -hmm. 
That makes sense. I just thought of an off-the-wall one. You ready? The Lord Ruler. Oh. What if the Lord Ruler didn't die and was still around? I I thought about that. You like, did. I, you posed a bunch. PJ, for the first two episodes of The Wall of Ascension, was like, Lord Ruler's not dead. He can't be. He's going to be alive. He's the immortal emperor. What do you mean? Um, it's just like, <laughs> yeah, no, that can't be true. Uh, sorry. <laughs> so there's that. The other, I think, significant ones in my mind, just because we all kind of had the same answer, I'm going to run through my other like options. Or Sewer, mm. I think would dramatically change the entire story. Zane. Having Zane survive, and similarly, Straff, oh, from a, from a more like subtle political perspective, I think that could really, really change the way that the entire war goes. How much more dramatic would it have been if it wasn't a siege on Yeoman and instead it was a siege on Straff? Like you switch the cities that Spook's involved in, you switch kind of like the whole plots, and then it's Straff versus Elland, and he's trying to be political as opposed to. Hmm. We kind of already got that, though. We did kind of already get that. So, yeah. But it, fair point. Fair point. But then we lose the glory of Vin just going, no. Right <laughs> True. Which is fantastic. With, yeah. It, 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 the political justice and the just yes of that moment of just is satisfying. Too satisfying to lose. Yeah. Such a great point. That is one of my favorite parts of the conclusion of the hero or of well of Ascension. Like that entire bit is so strong where it's like she just flies out and launches like a little fly in the air. And then the spec gets closer and closer and closer and you cut perspectives and strap is dead. Yeah, Mm. it's great. Does she split the horse? I think she does. Yeah. Yeah. She just comes down and splits everything just right. Mm -hmm. Sword comes down and she lands and the sword's in the ground and everything goes I do not look forward to that in the like because depending on who adapts it, this could be really gory, and I'm not a fan of gore. It's fair. It's a fair point. I I would think so. There was a wonderful question that's been put out a couple of times in terms of talking about people to adapt. Do you guys have any thoughts on like directors if you would choose or like person to be a showrunner or what have you? I don't know enough. Like I'm, I'm so bad with names and with like who's connected to what store, like what, what projects I'm, I'm so, so bad with that. You could just give me a project and I could tell you who did it. <laughs> Cause I probably know. This is that whole copper mind part of me. I want to see Alfonso Cuaron. That was my pick for for the director. He did Prisoner of Azkaban. I think he does a phenomenal job kind of combining the sort of life to characters and sort of the hopefulness of friendship. And at the same time, giving like the scary moments, the horror that they deserve in the form of the Dementors inside of that story, as well as Lupin's transformations into a werewolf. So I would pick personally, I think Alfonso Cuaron would do a fantastic job adapting the series. And I think that that would also be tasteful from a gore perspective. For instance, my brain depicts that shot that we were talking about, the death of Straff, with like the sun setting in the background, the red sun, and you just see him kind of like split apart in the distance as a silhouette, more or less. So it'd just be like a folding and you wouldn't see anything gory. You just like see the collapse but you know that she would, it was split in half because the sword would be on the other side. And I, I think that Corone would do a shot like that. So that's part of my rationale for picking Alfonso Cuaron. But that's very specific. I was asked this question on Twitter. That's why I have this very specific answer. By the question that you asked. I didn't <laughs> was asked. Yeah, fair point. Fair point. Um, I can tell you for Warbreaker, 
but that's only because of the fact that who'd you pick for Warbreaker? I don't know the guy's name, but he's okay. the guy who did a movie called The Fall. But it's actually it came from it's the entire reason why I the know Lee Pace the one, right? Yeah, the Lee Pace okay. one. Yeah, Tar- Tarsem Sign scene sing sing yep i love that movie love that movie and the entire reason why i know of that movie and fell in love with that movie was somebody actually clear back in the time of time wasters guide was talking about adaptions of warbreaker and said that that movie was a good example of why he should be in charge of warbreaker just because he does it's a blending of the fantasy and the realism and the way he plays with color in it. And it's an amazing movie. If you haven't seen it, good luck because it's impossible to get your hands on. I, I know I've been trying. I can, I can get you a digital copy if you want one. I actually have it. You've, you've got my discord. I can send it to you. I would love that because I've wanted to show it to my husband for years. Oh my God, and- it's so good. It, it doesn't exist anymore. It doesn't exist on Blu-ray. It doesn't exist digitally. It just. So my dad bought it and that's why we have it. And he digitally cataloged every DVD that we have or had. So I definitely have it. I will share it. I'll send it to you. Yay! Yeah. Oh, such, so such a good movie. And it's, it's one of those that is just truly stunning. I agree with you on the Warbreaker take. Wonderful, wonderful idea because he, he does a fantastic job. I was just like thinking, has he done anything else? He did selfless, which I did like. I want him to do more things. I want him to do, do more things, my friend. I think by way of Mistborn and who I'd want, the Dune director, I think, could do some good things with with Mistborn, but I almost think that he would almost do better with Stormlight than he would with Mistborn. Yeah, Villeneuve is one of my favorites, so I can't, I will never say no to Denis for any adaptation. I don't care what he's doing, I'm going to go see in theaters twice at least. So, yeah, I mean, I'm down. I would I would love that too. I think he would do a great job. PJ, any movies that you'd like to see style emulated and then I will tell the director? <laughs> I've got a couple of them. Okay. So one of them I know, Ridley Scott, because of his work with The Last Duel. Yeah, that's such a good movie. Oh my God. Did we record um, an episode talking about that or did we just, we just we did, did it for a live? We did it for a live. Oh, did we? Okay. <sighs> God, it was so good. Have you seen The Last Duel, duel Mish? I haven't. Oh my I God. To. Some, not, it's not it's graphic, heavy. but it is heavy. Yeah. So good. Very good though. So. Ridley Scott or whoever did the Watchmen HBO series. Mm, Damon Lindelof. Okay. He didn't direct it all. He wrote it all. Um, the The series was mostly directed by Nicole Cassell, who was his like co-creator. I think just the ability to capture unique perspectives within that series would lend itself very, very well to this story. Okay. The Westworld people could also do really good things with Mistborn. Man, whoever's doing, it's brand new, so I I hesitate to even talk about it, but whoever actually adapted the Sandman series could also do it because they've done such a fantastic job. I've only watched the first two episodes and I am in love with how it's been done. Wasn't Neil Gaiman heavily involved in Sandman? Heavily, which I would imagine 
Brandon would be as well in his own, you know. Yeah. I was yeah. just going to say he was also heavily involved in Good Omens and Good Omens I think is probably the best adaption of work I've ever seen. So maybe it's just a case of we need to make sure that the creator is heavily involved or we need to have Neil Gaiman heavily involved. That's what I was thinking. I was thinking the latter. Put Neil Ga- <laughs> Gaiman in charge of every fantasy thing forever and it will turn out great regardless, I think is. No, I I agree with you. I think regardless Brandon's involvement I think will be a key. Oh yeah principle of the whole thing i love the choices that we have here though between vilnuv to some tarsim singh and pj nicole castell and uh, ridley scott my only problem with scott is that he's old now and i am terrified ah man he's that that man's gonna die on set like and i mean that in like he's going to pass away from old age on set like it's not going to be an accident it's not gonna be anything like that he's gonna die behind the camera and with the rate at which he works it is, to put it in Hamilton terms for no good reason, he is directing things <laughs> like he's running out of time, but it's it's pretty great. So yeah, I, I love Ridley Scott inclusion there as well. Okay, running down on the on the questions here, but we get a lot of POVs in Era 1. What's your favorite? Which one would you like more of, or which would you like to be added? PJ mentioned Dachshund, of course, being an additional POV, but favorites and what you'd like to see more of from a POV perspective. I don't know if there's anybody that I can think of who maybe a little bit more of Tindawall, just because I think she could be a very, she's an outsider coming in. Mm-hmm. So she could be a very interesting, maybe Alrion because I love her manipulative little brain, but I think I'd like her as a point of view, as opposed to as a character on the outside. I think I'd appreciate her a lot more in that respect. Cross and I talked about wanting Penrod just to give more of a Luthadel perspective throughout all of Hero of Ages. But I think my favorite point of view is Spook. I think he's just so honest and he's, he's, he's innocent. He's an innocent kid with this unbelievable responsibility that he's kind of putting upon himself, but feels like he needs, like he's, he's, he feels so inadequate that he puts on this heavy burden for himself because he wants so badly to be a hero and ultimately becomes one. And I think that's such a cool perspective to see throughout the entirety of the Hero of Ages. I love I love Spook as well. And I think that for that same reason, I think to add in a POV... I would actually, and this is something that Brian's talking about inside of adaptation as well. I would love to see a female club's POV. Like if, if and when that happens inside of the adaptation, that's that's something that I think I would really appreciate because it would give us even more time with Spook to understand some of the decisions of why he's bringing them around and sort of the protective nature of clubs. Because I think clubs is in a lot of ways he's he's not like a gentle giant, but he's like a softy with a hard shell outside. And I I just really appreciate all of the scenes that he's in with Breeze is predominantly where we get him. So I would either beg for a new POV of clubs or I would beg for more of Breeze because, oh man, did I miss like having more Breeze in the last book after well this time through? It's like Breeze is so much fun because he is in a similar way to Alrianne. He is that manipulator. And so you get these perspectives of like moments where he's really genuine about things and then moments where he's pressing on other people to help them more often than not. And so I think with Alrianne and Breeze, you can kind of see that innate trade-off. And I think that they fill those similar niches of emotion. Man, 
I do really enjoy this book series. Okay. We just barely begin to explore Savantism capabilities and spook story nearer to the end of the series. But we wanted to ask you and kind of your thoughts on um, what other effects you can imagine other savants might have with their medals. Like, what, what do you think, like, a steel savant would look like, Ooh, for instance? You know, go whichever way with whatever yeah. you want, but yeah. See, it's hard to picture because, you know, I think that to an extent, Vin almost hit savant levels with some of the things that she's able to do. Just the fine manipulation of, because you see Kelsier using, whipping things around and stuff. And when he whips it around, it's a blunt object that gets hit. But you see Vin whipping around coins and manipulating them in such a way that I think you almost see her hit savant level. Steel pushing, pulling, yeah. I've also, yeah, I've also heard that uh, her level of pewter use almost borders on savant. With, well, actually, I think it was more of... I think it's almost textual, right? With the way that it's, that's said, yeah. 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 Basically, it says pewter is just very, very subtle in the difference between a general user and a savant in it. And also, most people die by the time they get to that level. So it doesn't explicitly say that Vin is one, but she's been burning pewter for months at that point when they mention that. Yeah. And months nonstop, like not sleeping, burning pewter for four months is i would think enough to to break you into that role but it does say that there's not really a difference that you can really perceptively notice the only other one that we really get solid evidence on like what the savantism traits are is copper clads and and just in general the smokers in general don't know that they're savants because it's so low impact on themselves to basically be occluding everyone but i'm curious on the other ones what what do you guys think about like a What's a um, rioter or soother savant look like? What what do these iron or steel savants look like? Because it's almost from Spook's perspective, it's almost addictive. So like, what's that? What's that like for these other metals in your head? In my head for steel, you see something like what what Zane's able to do because of his spike and being able to basically levitate and really, really intricately manipulate himself by pushing on steel. I, I would assume. Probably, uh, yeah, sorry. No, please. What were you going to say? Oh, I, I was going to say you could probably extrapolate that into iron and see something similar, like just pulling up on something and levitating that way, like something anchors the ceiling, like a person hanging, like a like uh, like a bad sign that's wafting in the wind back and forth, <laughs> or like some guys up there levitating in the air, waiting to drop down on someone. Very yeah. Batman. Anyway, for the others, I think that you'd probably get a clue into slightly what it would be like for with the duralumum, or however you mm-hmm. pronounce it, like duralumin. Whatever. Yeah, the garbage yeah, word. <laughs> well, and I'm famous for mispronouncing things. Anyway, but you see a little bit like with the emotionals, mm-hmm. you'd probably be able to like really pick out on what a person is feeling at any given time to be a savant. You'd you'd see an empath basically become the person become a bit of an empath and being able to manipulate the emotions that way or yeah 
I really like that for soothing. I feel like rioting would be you would accidentally inflame people. You know what I mean? Like soothing, I totally see like the empathic side of things. I see rioters as like anywhere that they direct their focus would be like creating an argument. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I, I just see like the blunt, the blunt instrument is how I kind of see rioting sometimes. So, yeah, definitely empathic for soothers. I, I agree with soothers for rioters. I think I disagree with you, Crossland. I don't think it goes more intense. I think you get more granular and you get to really, really focus in on like subsections of feelings that you're you're breaking down. I thought it was going to be like minutia about being right when you're arguing with someone like, oh, yeah, well, I know this thing anyway. Yeah. What were you saying, Michelle? Oh, just I, I agree that you'd probably be able to if you think about the emotion wheel of you know you've got surprise and then you've got i don't know i've seen the emotion wheel and you've got these different layers i think that rioters would probably be able to basically i want to make this person angry but savant would be able to be like i want to make them mildly annoyed about this one little thing mm-hmm. I have never once looked up emotion wheel. This is such a great way of thinking about the way that things break down. And as such, I think you're right. I think that (laughs) you are entirely correct. It is it is like taking that spectrum, which I think writers often do. They're just targeting that one big emotion. And you would turn someone who's feeling, you know, embarrassed into feeling guilty. And like you would you'd be able to see that nuance and understand it because as much of emotional romance is as much physical your ability to perceive things as it is also your ability to push on different emotions and notice things so yeah huh i love that i've never seen an emotion wheel before and that is wonderful yeah i've just looked it up too that that's exactly what i'm thinking exactly what i'm thinking of like going from the more granular or from the less granular to the to the more specific yeah how yeah. perfect Great. Yeah. Thank you for that. That is going to I'm just going to live with that for a bit in my side window and check that out whenever I need to. It's mm-hmm. a great tool for writers when you're trying to figure out what your character is feeling. It's really great to not use surprised 20 times in the same chapter. As a writer, I can't believe I don't know about this. Like that's <laughs> <laughs> That's why I'm like, I'm staring at this being like, I have to try. I work to come up with these terms really hard when you're like when you're doing the synonym search and you're like, my God, I said discovered four times in a row and I need something else to explain this. That isn't the same word. Yeah, that's great. I'm going to just bookmark that. Neat. Okay. thank you so much, Mish. So, yeah, Savantism is is really fascinating to me. I I wanted to say there, there are a couple, of course, that are really hard to pick out. Like specifically, like bronze, I would imagine would drive you insane if you were like a savant with bronze, right? Like it would, it had, it would have to. If like anyone was ringing near you, you would know those subtle drum beats. Hmm. Oh, I think you just get probably is a bronze savant. Yeah, being able to pierce the copper clouds. Yeah, yeah, but also being able to understand more specifically exactly what. Do we do we know if Vin is the only one within the story that is able to like really pick out what metals are being Marsh used? Can. No. Marsh teaches her. Marsh says yeah. if you get really good at this, you can figure out what metals are being burned. But so do, is that savantism being able to start picking that out or is that just being more in tune with it? 
just new ones. I think it's the beginning of the savantism. Mm-hmm. Okay, I would agree. I would say that that's like your first step in progression. Mm-hmm. We're in like tin, you know, your senses in general are broadened and then they're like heightened to the point of feeling every little grain of sand. It would be very similar where it's like, okay, I have to like reach to pull the feel and hear the pulse of whatever metal it is you're burning. And then savantism would be like, I don't even need to work at it. I just know what you're burning. What you're burning, who you're burning at. Oh, yeah. Fair point. Or your direction. Yeah. Your intent, as it were. So for the emotional ones, just because we we brought up tin and Spook kind of talks about how when he turns off his tin, it's almost like going blind. It's almost like going numb because he's been at this really, really heightened sense of feeling for such a long time. Does that similarly happen to one of the emotional Alamancers in that like once they turn it off, can they just not pick out any emotion at all? Are they are they just dull? I'm now thinking of a pewter savant would probably be in pain the entire time because it either in pain the entire time if they turned it off or else would not be able to feel any sort of pain ever. Or just weak all the time. Yeah. Pewter does so much all at once. Yeah. It's it's strength, it's dexterity, it's 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 you'd, a little bit turn of into like noodle hands like real quick like you'd be like <laughs> yeah it would, it would be a bad time i yeah i i like that yeah hmm. it's important to think about the consequences because that's the other side of savantism is you know you've got these top end capabilities but then at the same time you lose something deep which yeah i'm glad that you know of course spook doesn't have to live with his his capabilities and is kind of cured it by it in the end by Sazed. So, yeah. Hmm. You know, I'm staring at the list. I'm realizing we didn't ask a question about Sazed. Sazed goes from being kind of a, a servant character in the very beginning, a core part of the pru- crew, core part of the crew, but one of whom is really meant to just sort of give information and distribute things to the crew. And then by the very end of the story is the most important character in the entire chronology, um, secretly in the background. What do you guys think about Sazed's arc? It's subtle and I, it's, it's good, but it's subtle. And I love how he does go from in book one to being this character that you're like, Oh, if he doesn't show up again, it whatever. And by the end of book three, he is the hero of ages. I felt like his, even beyond Vin's, Vin goes from, from like street thug to God also. But I felt like we got more progression from Sazed. Not necessarily like a farther, he didn't go farther than Vin did, than Vin did. They both go from like this very, very low place in society to Godhood, effectively. But we see the entirety of it through Sazed's eyes. Whereas Vin, like we, I feel like again, in that first section or in that section between book two and book three, there's that big jump and we get a, we miss a lot from Ellen, but I feel like we also miss a lot from Vin to the point where we don't really see much of a progression from her or from Ellen in book three. Whereas we see an entire like valley of depression and every step of the way that gets him out of it. So I felt so, so satisfied by reading Sazed's entire arc. 
in a way that I, I don't think I have from almost any character that I've read. But that said, you know, I'm not a super well read person. So I'm sure hey, there are examples. It's still praise. Yeah, it's still good <laughs> praise. And I, I truly, I love, I love Caesar's Ark. I think that Caesar's Ark is, I, Michelle, you put it great. It is so subtle and wonderful and unexpected. And I think that's the best part is that like, he's mostly just a their character and he starts to grow in importance and you, you, you gain this fondness for him. And then he comes out on the other side and you're like, Oh, you, of course I was misreading this the whole time. You are, you were the prophesied hero from the very beginning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Love it. Oh, Oh, Oh man. Okay. So speaking of character arcs, We've got just a couple more and then we're we're done here. And whatever else you want to ask us, of course, or anything else that we stumble into, you know, we'll work its way out. In your opinion, which character had the best character art throughout the series? I feel like I just answered that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You did. You did for yourself. I just don't want to pin us into a corner here for everyone no, no, else. No, I answered that for myself. I'm sticking to it. I think Sazed. You did say Spook as well, for the record. For you me. said both Spook and Sazed. I do. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say Spook. Spook would probably have to be mine because he goes from not talking quiet in the corner to he becomes the ruler of the new world. Yeah, that's that's a pretty crazy arc. I, too, (laughs) am very fond of Spook, and I think I would also choose Spook because he goes from this very shy, shy kid who's who's kind of wearing his emotions on his sleeve to, you know a naive kid <laughs> as the story progresses like he doesn't he he grows in between and that moment in the well when he knows that he's leaving his uncle behind to die is one of those moments that just grabs my like heart and runs with it and then it feels like in the hero of ages he's fighting for that memory the entire time i think i mentioned it to pj at one point but one of the only changes that i wish would be made is as opposed to kelsey appearing as the image in his mind in all these different moments. I wish it was clubs. I wish so dearly it was clubs because that would just punch me repeatedly in the heart because he, he is really, he's not only fighting for Kelsier's memory, but he's also fighting for clubs. And like, if you just tied it back to the family, just a little bit more, like that's my dream retie to kind of fix it. Not that it needs fixing, but I, I think that I agree with you on the side of Spook from both of what he aspires to be in the form of Kelsier and of what he had in the form of clubs and how he kind of can hopefully meet those in the middle and drive forward emotionally. And he's the young, he's the young kid. It's great. PJ, you're standing by Sazed. I am, but I could, I could be swayed to say Spook as well. I just, I think Sazed is so complete in what we see. Because we see the the deepest depths of despair that he goes through with without holding any punches back, we we don't get any really significant time time skips where he's like crawled out of that that pit, you know. We see him through it the whole the whole way. Okay, you're alone on your Sazed train. We're going to stick on the spook bus, it. and we'll <laughs> see you later. I do I do really enjoy Sazed's arc. It's tough to say, you know, it is. It is so fascinating to me that when you talk about characters in books and trilogies, usually the characters that are set up at the very beginning is the primary character, the people, you know, that people gravitate towards the most. And this series is one that people split in all kinds of directions because of the way the story goes. So, oh, so good. Okay. All right, not necessarily a parting shot of a question, but near there. 
what's your favorite romance pairing in the series and why what's your what's your favorite romance of the group and we've got Ariane Breeze we've got Cezanne Tindwell we've got Vin and Ellen you know for the most and Kelsey and Marshmare if you really want to get dicey but favorites well we know who my least favorite is no I think my favorite is actually probably Breeze and Ariane because even they both are well breeze is so beat up about it but she's just like yep nope this is what i want and they're believable when you see them interacting with each other you see you can see the romance and you can see the love there mm-hmm. there's natural teasing it's wonderful right like yeah you get that. You get you get the flustered breeze in those moments where he's like, oh, my God. And he's so self-conscious because he is older. But at the same time, you know, it's not a manipulated relationship. Yeah. I, I love it, too. I think I talked to you about this at one point, Crossland. And I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to mention it, but I, I, I don't think I'll use it as my answer. But I really love. The one sided love story between Vin and Spook. And what high regard he holds her in. And that that starts right at the beginning. He holds her in high regard from the beginning. And that that regard maintains throughout Hero of Ages. And it's a little bit of self-consciousness and a, l- a little bit of jealousy as opposed to love and adoration. But, but that relationship in his mind still exists. And he talks to Beldra about the fact that he gave her a handkerchief at one point and like that clearly stuck in his head and it was very very meaningful for him despite nothing actually happening but of a two-sided relationship that i'd have to choose i think i'd go with with says it and i think it's very very meaningful and impactful they're very different people but you get to see the whole overlap of interests and the true sort of kinship that they share it's so tough to not just say like, yeah, I love, I love them all. Can I, I like all my action figures. Can I keep them all? Do I have to choose? Even though I pose the question, I'm making us all choose our favorite action figures. I, I, I'm a sucker for the impact that Kelsier and Mare's relationship has on everyone else in the story. I don't, it's not the best romantically, of course, because Mare's already dead before the story really begins. So I, I really love that impact of that pairing over the course of the story and the way that Kelsier's faith in Mare inspires the rebellion. And then in turn, you know, Mare's faith kind of travels from hand to hand to hand and really kind of impacts everyone in their own right. However, if I had to pick a, a real pairing, you know, outside of them, I think. I would agree on Breeze and Alrian because I think that it is a fantastic pairing. I think they expose the best in each other and the worst in each other. And I think that it leads to among the people with their capabilities that are the most inclined to be dishonest. It shows a level of honesty that goes unparalleled between most of the other characters. It says in Twindwell, maybe being the exception, they're very honest with each other. So at the very least, there's that. They're just shy about it. So. Yeah, love, love all the little romances. Vin and Ellen are great, of course. Love, love the little, all of the dances and the enemies to lovers and everything else that goes on there. But yeah, any anything else that you guys wanted to talk about? Any other suppositions, questions? Anything that you want to, any any teases even? Usually you want to pause or pause it for PJ going into era two. Ooh, you get to watch out for the bride. She is a feisty woman. The bride. <laughs> All right. I, I, no, in, it's good. In Alloy of Law, I uh, I am the bride at 
the wedding. It's Lord. No, it literally it's Lord Joshin and I like, and it is supposed to be me and my husband. It's our a cameo for the two of us. Oh, oh that's if awesome. I remember correct, you're you were beta readers. If I yes. or or yes, okay, all right, um, yeah. okay, just want to make sure. Yeah, that's no, awesome. But, yeah. Um, no, yeah. it's my little thing. My husband and I met actually because of Brandon, and. We got engaged in Brandon's class. Josh proposed to me in Brandon's class. And then we invited Brandon to our wedding. And so that's a little fun thing for us is the bride and groom is Lord Joshin or Lord Josh in and Lady <laughs> Michelle. That's uh, amazing. Amazing. That's, that's amazing. So cool. I literally have reread the entire Valor of Law in the last week. And so that's very exciting because it's on the top of my brain. Great. <laughs> Fantastic. That's a great bit of trivia for everyone listening to our show as well. Awesome. Well, what <laughs> how does how does one continue? Now I'm um, so excited to get there. Yeah. I don't know where um, it is. I know nothing. Book. <laughs> I don't know nothing about the story. Sure. But I'm excited. Look forward to Thank it. Thank you. Go ahead. What were you gonna say? Michelle? Oh no, I was just gonna say that it's about the only thing era two is fantastic it's a lot of fun and it's really fun to see what brandon does with the magic so you have a fun story ahead of you i'm excited very very excited very excited for us to get into era two and to kind of we're cruising through it all just to give you a perspective the week of dragon steel we'll be publishing the second episode of secret history meaning that the week following i will have read the book decided how to break out the book into parts and then also have planned our episodes in the span of seven days so we'll be doing great it should it should be a great time all told thank you so much for coming on the show this has been an absolute joy to chat about this with you and to to have this experience we cannot wait it would would be great we're doing we're doing era two of course if you or anyone else wants to join us for any of those wrap-up episodes we have them planned penned in we've got some space would love to have you back be it for post lost metal or what have you thank you so much for coming on the show anything else that you want to mention before you go the places that people can find you like you'd mentioned before anything to reiterate um 17th shard is awesome but i'm biased of course True. as a founder <laughs> <laughs> you, you're correct you're not biased you're, you're factual <laughs> come check us out on discord on the forums if you come to dragon still we're gonna have a booth so i'll see you there yeah make sure to I swing by to. and say hi i hope i'm there i really hope i get to go i'm excited i'd love to I know that we have a number of our listeners that are coming as well. So, it, I mean, I'm sure they're co-listeners across. But, yeah, it, very exciting. Very excited to be there. And we'll definitely be at the booth for, for at least a second to say what's up. Very excited. And then people can find you inside of Discord on the forums. First Rainbow Rose, right? Yep. Or is it Rainbow Rose? Okay, First Just, Rainbow Rose. Uh, first Rainbow Rose. Pretty much mm-hmm. if you Google First Rainbow Rose, I think I am still every single result. So... Perfect. If you need to find me, I'm easy to track down. We love that. We love that for you. Perfect. All right. Well, with that, again, thank you so much for being our guest in this episode and chatting with us. We can't wait for the next chance. I hope you had a great time hanging out with us. Beyond that, next week, we begin Era 2 with Alloy of Law, reading chapters prologue through 7. 
we're doing the book in like three episodes. So it'll be it'll be fun to kind of go through. But it's so much it's it's shorter. It's a lot shorter than the previous books. I think it's 65,000 words or something like that. So we're doing it at about pace. So that's where we'll leave you for this week. Thank you so much to Tim and Andrew for keeping our show's lights on. You can check out the links in our show notes. You can find our schedule, our Patreon, our previous episodes, our websites, our social media accounts, all in one very convenient location. And thank you, of course, to the 17th Shard, Michelle, or Michelle, and the entire thing for taking all this time with us to, to spend to talk about the show we, or the book. Thank you so much for spending all this time with us to talk about the series, to talk about everything that was going on in the books, and, and for sharing all of this wonderful insight and information. We greatly appreciate your time and can't wait to have you guys back on the show. So thank you very much for all of that. Beyond that, you can find us, as PJ had mentioned, Words Whiskey Pod on Twitter, Instagram, Reddit, Words and Whiskey Show at gmail.com, patreon.com forward slash Words and Whiskey, and our t shirts are on T Public. You can follow the link to check out more there. Um, we may have some updates coming to those pretty soon, either new logos and likely a new place to shop for them. So look out for that because it'll be a fun little update. So thank you all so much for supporting us. And thanks again to Michelle for coming on the show. Yeah, we, we've had that in the works for a long time, haven't we? I think since book one, maybe book two. This appearance? Yes. yes book yeah. one. Yeah. Yeah. Great to see it finally come to fruition. This was such a yeah. fun time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it, things things pop up and other things like that. We we were going to have a couple more folks on, but here we are. And it was I had a fantastic time. I loved it. And I can't wait for to have more folks on over the course of the next couple of books, wrapping up things like, you know, the Stormlight Archive, like some of the other books inside the Cosmere to have on to talk with us about it. So, yeah, can't wait. Agreed. Beyond that, make sure to check them out. I, I should mention for sure, uh, pump them. Check out Shardcast, which also has the subshow Span Reads, which is about Mistborn specifically. Currently, it'll be going through the entire works of the Cosmere, but their first season is out covering all of Era 1. They should be moving into Era 2, following and then subsequent books after that, including the other books as mentioned. Check out Coppermind and the 17th Shard. They're in old-style web form. They're fantastic. They're Definitely the best that still exists that hasn't just been consumed by Reddit, which I think is awesome because I think a lot of that structure of web talk has moved pretty much to Reddit and other, you know, other locations and their discord, which you can go to chat with a bunch of like minded Cosmere fans. 17th Shard there is also a fantastic place to group to chat about everything you might like about Brandon Sanderson's writing and the Cosmere on the whole. With that, we'll see you next week talking about Alloy of Law. I'm so excited. I'm going to go read tonight. <laughs>